Hello, listeners. Do you like these kind of spokespeople on TV? Do you want to know what happened to them? Do you want to know about how they got to where they are? Well, head on over to Patreon.com, and I'm going to tell you all about it. You have to give us $5 a month, only $5 a month. That's the old Lucy level, and I'll tell you all about Billy Mays, Vince Offer, Ron Popeil, Tony Little, and even Anthony Sullivan. That's right, folks. Head on over to Patreon.com. Give us $5 a month, and you can get this exclusive content. What are you waiting for? Act now. Hey, welcome to Club This Was a Thing. Okay, coming out to the stage is a pretty thing that shows a lot of promise. She's only 27 years old and runs 131 minutes, but she's had people talking about her for quite some time. She starts strong, ends weak, and picks herself up and gives us all a good time, as well as a strong satirical message about discrimination in a patriarchal world. Please welcome to the stage, Showgirls, on this week's This Was a Thing. Hi, I'm Ray. And I'm Rob. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. On today's episode, we are looking at Showgirls. Oh my god. I know. Now this was a thing because it was the first time an NC-17 film would be mandatory viewing for every 90s man, woman, and horny teenager. And when seas of flannel shirts and neon cutoffs stormed the man theater box office, little did the audience realize it would be them, not just Spano getting fucked. In order to understand Showgirls, which is a 1995 movie written by Joe Esterhaz and directed by Paul Verhoeven and starring Elizabeth Jesse Spano Berkeley, Saved by the Bell. Oh, God. She's and, the best. Right? And rated the dreaded NC-17. You have to understand the power of Joe Esterhaz and Paul Verhoeven. Verhoeven was the Dutch director behind such late 80s juggernauts as Robocop. Ooh, Robocop. Total Recall. Total Recall. And Basic Instinct. Instinct is basic. <laughs> and Esterhaz had penned the hits Flashdance. Oh, my God. Basic Instinct. Ba- Instinct is still basic. And Sliver. Yeah, you know what he got paid for that? What? A sliver of the... Uh, get the fuck out. he was supposed to get paid. The studios would do anything for one of these men to be attached to one of their films, much less both of them. Ideally, if the studios could have their way, they'd have something like the erotic thriller Verhoeven and Esterhaz had created in 1992... Basic Instinct, which if you've never seen Basic Instinct, is probably most famous for the scene where Sharon Stone, while not wearing any underwear, crosses her legs and flashes the camera. Oh, I've seen it. (laughs) Sharon Stone has also said that she was not aware 
that that was going to happen and that she was tricked by Verhoeven into doing that on camera. Mr. Verhoeven is not going to come off in this episode, I think, in a very positive light, but we shall see. If you can add in some of the gory violence that Verhoeven was known for, then maybe they might have another box office smash on their hands. Here is an interview with Paul Verhoeven about how showgirls came across his desk. No jokes, please. It all started when Joe Esterhaus came to me and say, said, I have an idea about a movie in Vegas. And then I thought, that's great. But not only can I do dancing and I can do music, but I can do nudity. And I love nudity. I think it's great. Male or female, I think it looks beautiful. And I thought this was a po possibility to show, especially females, because it's a movie about women and not about men, you know, it's show girls and not show boys. So it would be female nudity mostly. And I loved to do that. I thought it was great to do a movie with a lot of naked women and show the beauty of the female body. Like so many artists have done, you know, painters and sculptors and whatever. The female bo body for me is great and is attractive, it's sexual, it's beautiful, it's aesthetic, it's everything. My favorite uh, painting is Rembrandt's Girl on a Pole. <laughs> I really think that he brings the pole to life and Rembrandt just knows how to bring the curves of the woman and the patrons of the bar. Anyway. So he wants to film naked women, but apparently, I'm like, what's the story of the movie? It's like kind of in reverse order. It's like, well, do, here's the story. Oh, they can be naked. He's like, no, I want them naked. What's the story? It's like writing a musical, all the songs first, and then filling in the libretto afterwards. Well, this idea that Esther has had came to him when he was lounging by a pool and Maui and wrote it on a cocktail napkin. And he was advanced $2 million for the script and then got another $1.7 million when the studio took it. That's just like what happened with J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter. The pitch, just sex and strippers and sex. But it was a really great looking cocktail napkin. Oh, it was gorgeous. Now, Verhoeven demanded, this is interesting, he demanded that the movie be given an NC-17 rating, which was a really new thing in the 90s as NC-17 was kind of a kiss of death because you couldn't get anybody to come see the movie. Yeah. So Verhoeven got $6 million for directing Showgirls, but he deferred 70% of that until the studio had a profit in exchange for creative freedom. That was the deal. That's actually not a, that's a good deal, I guess. I mean, if you have confidence in the project, do you know what I mean? Like, right? I mean, I'm sure he got much more of what he wanted and like you said, creative freedom. Oh, I'm sure he did. And he sees the goal of this film as to be a parable on the American dream. It's going to upend the American dream. The studio, by the way, that's funding Showgirls, it's the same studio that gave us Sing in the Rain, The Wizard of Oz, and an American in Paris, MGM, and now they're going to give us Jesse Spano getting fucked in a jacuzzi. But they're dancing, though, so they're still dancing. You know, Gene Kelly was the original choreographer. <laughs> if you've never seen Showgirls, I'm going to try to give you what the story of this movie is so you can get a full understanding of it. Let me go get a Kleenex. <laughs> and I'll talk slowly and uh, in a low, sexy voice for you. Before I begin, though, Mr. Hebel, have you seen the movie Showgirls. Yes, I was about uh, probably 17 at the time, and it was like one of those sneaking the DVD type things. But, uh, oh yeah, I watched it. So you're familiar with the, the beauty that is Showgirls? Oh, absolutely. All right. So the story is about Nomi Malone. Uh, she's a drifter. She comes to Las Vegas to be a showgirl. She gets all of her stuff stolen. She ends up being a stripper, where she licks a pole 
And even like pre-COVID, it makes you nervous. Like, oh. well, you know what I mean? Yeah. And she befriends the sweetest girl in the movie named Molly. And Molly's going to get destroyed by the end of the film. And and Molly's story is, is one of the controversial elements about this film. Now, Molly introduces Nomi to the legendary Crystal Connors, the, the headliner of Stardust's Goddess show. And Goddess is watched over by Zach. And he's the entertainment coordinator of the Stardust. He's also Crystal's boyfriend. Now, when Crystal equates Nomi's job as a stripper to a prostitute, Nomi is devastated. I mean, I could see that being devastating, especially for a young drifter just trying to make her way and trying to have an act by licking a pole. So then Nomi meets a bouncer named James, who is very nice but kind of duplicitous, as he gives the dance routine he created for Nomi to Penny. More about Penny later. <laughs> Crystal now is back at the strip. She wants. She goes to the strip club. She wants to prove her point that Nomi's a prostitute, but she also wants to fuck Nomi. So she makes Nomi give her boyfriend, Zach, a lap dance. And she's like, you see, you're a prostitute. This woman is so hell-bent on proving a point. Like, let it go, Crystal. She is one of the best villainesses in uh, film, I think. She gets Nomi an audition at her show, and Nomi is humiliated when the director says to put ice cubes on her nipples to make them hard. It does not work. Despite the fact that she tells her employer to fuck off and she destroys property, they still hire Nomi. They're like, let's bring her in. She's great. I just can't get those nipples out of my mind. They won't get hard. And <laughs> no I gotta have her. <laughs> and Nomi and Crystal bond at the I think the Caesar's Palace like buffet. <laughs> Crystal then says to Nomi, Hey, you should go do this boat show. Because, you know, they have lots of conventions in Vegas. Nomi goes, and guess what? It's another prostitute thing. So, like, what the fuck is Crystal's obsession with proving that Nomi is a prostitute? And I'm using the word prostitute. That's the word they used. I would like to say sex worker. Nomi, at this point, is like, fuck Crystal. So she seduces Zach, and then they fuck in a jacuzzi. And it's graphic as fuck. It's one of the most graphic scenes I've ever seen in a movie. And also watching, like, Kyle MacLachlan fuck, it's just not pretty. The only thing I compare it to is, like, the opening of... Uh... <laughs> Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> you can't look away, you and you're like the horror. And you're like, oh my God, this is what it's really like. Wow, that's intense <laughs> yeah, for everybody. Wow. Nomi at this point is is now hell-bent on getting Crystal, so she just pushes Crystal down a flight of stairs, and they bump Nomi to, to be the headliner. Now, sweet Molly. Remember Molly? She's the friend. She oh, goes yeah. to Nomi's opening night party, and she wants to meet Andrew Carver, this musician who's her idol. And then he and his bodyguards... In, like, this brutal, violent scene that literally has no place in the movie and comes out of nowhere, they rape Molly. They just rape Molly in one of, like, the most... And you're like, what the fuck is happening in this movie? So Nomi wants to tell the police, but Zach blackmails Nomi, saying if she does, he knows that Nomi is really a woman named Polly, who's a criminal and a drug addict who ran away after her parents' murder-suicide. So Zach says, if you go to the police and report Andrew Carver, who's like the big headliner at the hotel, I'm going to ruin you. So Nomi decides to take the law into her own hands, and she beats up Andrew. Then she goes to visit Molly and Crystal in the hospital to say goodbye, and then she goes off to L.A., presumably for a sequel, Nomi Goes to Hollywood. You got it? Okay, good. For the guys, the writer, the director, they marry the backstage drama of All About Eve to the insincerity of the American dream, and they're going to give it a few money shots and lots of prime rib. In later <laughs> interviews, 
these two gentlemen discuss the movie as, quote, satire, quote, important, quote, anti-establishment. To me, it sounds like they wanted to make a porno and had to justify <laughs> it in some way, shape, or form. They also interviewed 200 strippers for the movie for authenticity. Okay. But I kind of get the feeling it's like a nice payday for them and, like, we'll put a lot of sex in it and we know the audience is going to come see it. Now, who is going to, like, populate this film? Who is going to star in this film? Because it is risky on 90 million different levels. So for Zach, they originally look at Dylan McDermott, and he turned it down. Oh, poor <laughs> so Dylan. So it went to Twin Peaks' very own Dale Cooper, Kyle McLaughlin. And it's kind of perfect casting because Kyle McLaughlin throughout his entire career has just made very bold choices. Yeah. And he said, Kyle McLaughlin, quote, that was a decision that was sort of a tough one to make, but I was enchanted with Paul Verhoeven, particularly Robocop, which I loved. It was Verhoeven and Estrahaz, and it seemed like it was going to be kind of dark and edgy and disturbing and real. So, okay, I understand why he signs on. And he's also a great actor. That's not a, this is not a criticism of his acting. Crystal Connors, which is a big role, they looked at Madonna, they looked at Sharon Stone again, they looked at Finola Hughes, and she was like, this is too sexist, so she turned it down. And it went to Gina Gershon, who is brilliant in this film. She's so good in it. She was in Cocktail and Pretty in Pink prior to all of this. So she didn't have the same sort of like street cred as like a Madonna or box office name as a Madonna or a Sharon Stone. She, I think, is the only person that understands what movie she's in when you watch this film. And then they flesh out the rest of the cast. Gina Rivera is going to be Molly. Glenn Plummer is going to play James. And Patrick Bristow, who I love, he's the choreographer that yells at her going, thrust it, thrust it, thrust it. I forgot Patrick Bristow is in this. Two, three, four, thrust it, thrust it, thrust it, thrust it, come on, thrust it, Bob. Okay. That's enough. Thank you, ladies. But who's going to play? Nomi. Now, the role of Nomi is hard because you have to be able to act and dance. And lick a pole. And lick a pole, be naked, and have simulated sex. This is a lot to be asking. <laughs> so they asked Jenny McCarthy, and they asked Pam Anderson, and they asked Drew Barrymore and Angelina Jolie, and they all turn it down. But then comes Elizabeth Berkeley, who was fresh off the canceled show Saved by the Bell. If you've never seen Saved by the Bell, she played Goody Two-Shoes, Jesse Spano, the academic probably the smartest person on the television show. Caffeine pill addict. Now, casting her is actually, I think, kind of brilliant because it underlines the satire that they're going for, that this that, that this person who's been on television and is like a children's favorite yeah. has this other side to her. Now, she was paid only $100,000 for playing the lead. Oh, my gosh. And when the special VIP edition box set DVD was released in 2004, she requested $2,500 to be interviewed and they declined it. Wow. So when they start filming this movie, they everyone thinks it's going to be a big hit. Basic instinct big <laughs> hit. And it doesn't seem to bother anyone that when they're filming, everyone seems to be working on a different movie. Uh-huh. Some are doing gritty drama. Some are doing satire. Some are doing after school special. And sometimes they're doing all of those things in one line. So whether she thought so or not, or, or, or it got back to her in some way, People are telling Elizabeth Berkeley, you should probably practice an Oscar speech. Oh, my God. Here is the Elizabeth Berkeley being interviewed on the set of Showgirls. I've been preparing this for this role my whole life, basically. Um, Twelve years, two to three hours a day dancing. So I can't really put that into words, except for it's in my blood, it's in my bones, it's in my heart. And I can't, I can't exist like Nomi without dance in my life. I'm just, I'm fortunate that I found something 
that, that gives me such joy and gives me such life because I know a lot of people don't ever find that one thing. Acting and dance does that for me, and I get to do both. So what could be better? Have you ever seen the Christopher Guest movie For Your Consideration? Yes. So for anyone that doesn't know, it's about uh, these people are making a movie and all of a sudden someone gets like, oh, you have Oscar buzz. And so the movie starts turning into like everyone in the cast going, oh, there's Oscar buzz, Oscar buzz. And that's what it turns into. I just imagine that starting to happen on the set of Showgirls. Well, you know, it's so funny you say that because the movie wraps and it's going to hit theaters September 22nd, 1995. And I think you can tell the entire cast and crew is prepping for like their big career leap on September 23rd, 1995. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it seems that there was no discussion with the studio's marketing team about the intention of the movie. Satire, comedy, parody, observations on the American dream, that all like gets thrown away. And what the public is told because of the way the movie is marketed is Showgirls is not funny. It is not a parody. It is hot. It is sexy. Here's the trailer. The passion is real. I can fall in love with you. The desire is intense. You can't touch me, but I can touch you. I'd really love to touch you. And the show is about to begin. Showgirls. Leave your inhibitions at the door. Leave your inhibitions at the door. Literally, this trailer made everyone hard during those Batman Forever movies. <laughs> the media hype around this movie was something otherworldly. Everyone knew about it. You couldn't escape it. The logo was iconic, if you remember. It was Elizabeth Berkley's uh, torso and leg as a sliver against a black backdrop everywhere with, once again, the tagline, leave your inhibitions at the door. What would have been a better tagline, you think, to let people know you can la- like this is a con- this is a satire? Um, directed by Mel Brooks. <laughs> Folks, if you're listening and have an idea of what tagline should be used to make everyone know that Showgirls is a satire and they can laugh, please tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us. Anything. Just reach out, please. Just reach out. We're very lonely Rob's over here. Rob's phone number will be at the very end of the episode. It's 1-900. This is Elizabeth Berkeley on the David Letterman show promoting the movie. So now you come in and all of a sudden you're naked. I mean, what is that like? Does that, I mean, uh, 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 do you blush? I mean, just from head well, to foot? Basically, the first day, what I said to the crew is I said, look, for the next four and a half months, you're going to be seeing this body, so get used to it. And we all just, we had a good sense of humor about it. And when I would do my strip numbers, uh, my pole dances. Easy, Paul. Easy. Easy. I lost my balance. Easy, easy. I got, uh, I just... Are you all right? I'm okay now, yeah. We got to put a safety bar on that thing. I know, thing, I, just, I got a little... A little Try to hang on to your organ the next time that what? happens. Once again, folks, just a reminder, she's 22, 23. Uh, so it becomes so second it, nature? It became really? second nature at a certain point. It was almost a waste of time to put the robe on and off. It was like... But I would... I was appreciated by the crew. They would... Well, <laughs> there's... That's kind of a headline right there, huh? <laughs> I will say what I love about Elizabeth Berkeley is that she owns the sexuality. Oh, totally. And I love that so much about her. Good for you, Elizabeth Berkeley. Hey, friends, hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, could you do us a favor? After you listen to today's episode, open up your podcast app and leave us a review. Please. The more reviews we get, the more people will discover us. And the more people that discover us, the less lost we'll feel. You're good, buddy. It's okay. Uh, look, nothing has ever been easier to do. Just go ahead and grab a pen real quick. It's okay. We'll wait. Don't worry. 
Okay, head on over to your podcast app, click those three dots in the lower right-hand corner, click Go to Show, scroll down till you see ratings and reviews, then leave us some stars and a comment or two so our parents know that it was worth all the tuition that they spent. And if you really love us, head on over to Patreon.com and send us some money, and in return, you will get access to merch, special episodes, bonus content, pictures of me shirtless. Okay, okay, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Search This Was a Thing and help us out. But you know what? You've already helped us out today by listening to us, and we can't tell you how much we appreciate that, so thank you. Thank you. And of course, everyone, after like these clips and the interviews, everyone wants to see what is happening in this movie that is so sexual, so sensual, so hot that no one under the age of 17 will be allowed in. Of course, kids are smart, so they will buy a ticket to go see Clueless, and then they'll sneak into Showgirls. But security guards are stationed inside oh, yeah. movie theaters to make sure people don't buy tickets to Clueless babe pig in the city and sneak in so imagine september you're settling into the your movie theater the lap of your guest jeans is concealed by your large popcorn bag your girlfriend next to you hoping that she's going to take some mental notes on the thousand and one positions you will see jesse spano do with the guy from twin peaks <laughs> so the movie starts and suddenly any erection you had goes down faster than that pizza roll you wolfed out on the way to the theater what you see is a mess a big gaudy mess you have actually seen better camera shots in your dad's home movies you've seen more realistic acting from the cat in clarissa what is happening and the sex is so gross so intense so bizarre that all you can do is laugh at how stupid it all looks it's satire but if you were shocked by how <laughs> bad the movie comes out imagine the cast's reactions this is kyle mclaughlin and so cut two years later, or not years later, but months later, I go to my first screening and I watch this movie and I'm like, oh my God, this is awful. I said, oh my God. But you know, you have this, this hope, like you watch the first scene and you're like, all right, all right, that was not so good, but it's gotta get better. And I watch the second one, it's like, mm, not getting any better, okay. And I watched the whole thing and I said, I don't know what to say about this movie. I don't think I can talk about this movie. And so I didn't do any press, which didn't you know, make any friends um, in the publicity department there at that time, but it was just too difficult. And uh, now, of course, the movie's got this great life, um, you know, lives on in, uh, in infamy, I guess, and uh, it's sort of a crowd pleaser. But at the time, it was, it was, it was a pretty big embarrassment. Uh, you know, it's just like, all right, got to go forward from here. But I think my career definitely took a hit on that one. And the critics rip the film apart. <laughs> surprise, surprise. But they just consistently go after Elizabeth Berkeley's performance. Gina Gershon actually gets good reviews. This performance, which seems to be all over the place in this film, like, like in this scene, which is pretty iconic now, where she's being asked about her past and where does she come from? She's also trying to get some condiments on a burger. You know anybody here? You got any family that you can call? I don't have any family. Where are you from? Back east. From where back east? Different places. This is a quote from Verhoeven. People have, of course, criticized her for being over the top in her performance. Most of that comes from me. I pushed in that direction. 
good or not good. I was the one who asked her to exaggerate everything, every move, because that was the element of style that I thought would work for this movie. If somebody has to be blamed, it should be me, because I thought that it was interesting to portray somebody like that. I had hoped the end of the movie would explain why she acted that way. When it's revealed, she has convictions linked with drugs, but that too turned out to be a big mistake. (laughs) I asked Elizabeth to do all that, to be abrupt and to act in that way, but people have been asking her about that ever since. I did consider that people would think she had a borderline personality, but that was because her character had a history of drug abuse, so I tried to express that through her abruptness. And my feeling is, that would have been nice to know early on in the film. He should have done one of those opening Star Wars crawls that has the exposition of what happened up to that point at the right? beginning of the film. And the critics attack Elizabeth Berkeley with such hatred, anger, disgust about her, her looks, her body, her dancing, her sexuality. And once again, folks... She's only 23. Here's some of the highlighted quotes from people. As an actress, Berkeley is, to put it mildly, limited. She has exactly two emotions, hot and bothered. That's uh, from Entertainment Weekly. (laughs) Another critic, Janet Maslin, described her as having, quote, the open-mouthed, vacant look of an inflatable party doll. Opening weekend, Joe Esterhouse took out a a full-page advertisement in Variety in which he was like, the film is a morality tale. He said the advertising is misguided. And he also said the movie shows that dancers in Vegas are often victimized, humiliated, used verbally and physically raped by the men who are at the power centers of that world. But nothing can save Showgirls, and it makes back less than half of its $40 million budget. $40 million? Yes, $40 million for that. But to date, it is still the highest grossing NC-17 film. Now, it receives, sorry, no Oscar nominations, Uh but a record 13 Razzie nominations, which is still a record. And it won Worst Picture, Worst Actress, Worst Director, Worst Screenplay, Worst New Star, Worst New Couple. Who's the couple? According to them, any two-person scenes in the movie. (laughs) Worst Original Song. And in the 90s, it won Worst Picture of the Decade. Elizabeth Berkley then got dropped by her agent. Oh, my God. And she said, ever since those reviews for Showgirls, it's like I was that woman in the Scarlet Letter. Except that instead of having to wear the letter A for adulteress, I was condemned to wear an S for showgirl. Her career kind of, I mean, I hate to use the word derailed because she still works. She still has a career. And I'm sorry, I think I've seen a lot worse acting from a lot of other people that that have much bigger careers than her. I think she was misdirected. I think that she was probably too trusting to Paul Verhoeven. I've seen her in other stuff, and she's a good actress. But once again, I think she's this really great actress that got punished for her debut film, and I'm sorry about that. Although I think she was the best actress out of everybody on Saved by the Bell. In retrospect, Verhoeven said, Clearly we made mistakes. Clearly it was one of the biggest failures of our time. It failed commercially, critically. It failed on videotape. It failed internationally. In retrospect, part of it was that Paul and I were coming off of Basic Instinct, which defied the critics and was a huge success. Maybe there was a certain hubris involved. You know, we can do what we want to do, go as far there as we want. And he said the rape scene was a god-awful mistake, in retrospect, a terrible mistake. And musically, it was eminently forgettable. And in casting, mistakes were made. (laughs) So it just goes on and on. Not him, though. He didn't do anything wrong. The lighting was pretty good. And with that, with the director of the film saying, boy, that was bad. You'd think showgirls, much like Nomi, would just disappear into the mist. But we are all forgetting about the magic word, the word that saved many a movies that failed at the box office. That word? Blockbuster. Oh, yes. More about that 
when we come back. This was a thing, this was a thing. And now, this is a sketch. Hello, yes. Is this Dennis Haskins? Yes. Mr. Belding from Saved by the Bell himself? Yes. And good morning, Miss Bliss. Oh, wow. I cannot believe I'm actually talking to you. Uh, My name is Paul Verhoeven, and I am a director, and I'm working on a new movie called Showgirls, and you're the only person I can think of to play the lead role of Nomi. Well, I am honored, Mr. Verdopen. Verhoeven. Bergdorfen. Verhoeven. Verhoeven. Paul. Paul. I knew you always had range ever since I saw the episode where you looked at your newborn baby that Zach delivered in the elevator. But truthfully, when I saw the episode where you visit the kids at the beach resort, your nipples are the only nipples I picture for Nomi. There is a specific circumference we need, and you have that, Mr. Haskins. Please, call me Dennis. No, I, I cannot. It would cheapen you. May, may I ask you a few questions? Of course. Uh, it's just some things for the part. Uh, do you have dance experience? I took beginning tap at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. I got a B. Wonderful, wonderful. Have you ever driven stick? Uh, yes, I used to drive taxis at night while I attended the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Wonderful, wonderful. Have have you ever been penetrated by Kyle McLaughlin? No, but I used to think about it while I was a bi-curious sophomore at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. I've actually been following Kyle's career for quite a while now. Then I think this is a go. Uh, do you have any questions for me? Where will you be filming? We will be on location in Vegas. How would you feel about shooting the film in Chattanooga? I know, a real great campus. Oh, Dennis, I am sorry. A major part of the film takes place in the Caesars Palace shops. Mm, well, shoot. Great of differences, I guess. Uh, have you reached out to Lark Voorhees? Unfortunately, Miss Lisa Turtle is now a Jehovah's Witness. Oh, that'll never work. How about Liz? <gasps> Dennis Haskins, you beautiful genius with beautiful nipples. Thank you, I must go. Operator, get me Elizabeth Berkeley. Thank you. This was a sketch. So, the old saying goes, if you can't beat them, Join them. And MGM attempts to do just that, thinking it has a cult classic on its hands. It starts doing midnight showings of showgirls, but those aren't really well attended. They they do marketing for those like all leopardy. They announce their Razzies on the advertisements, and people just aren't having it. Now, Showgirls has a problem, which is you can't show it on television. No. Right? Which is how a lot of bad movies sort of have become classics yeah, over time. They revive their careers of movies. Right? And so there's like there's the censored VH1 version where they CGI'd <laughs> bras and panties on all the naked oh, people. Oh, really? And they redubbed the lines that had bad language in it, except they wouldn't pay Elizabeth Berkeley to dub her line, so it's a, you hear a random person's voice every once in a while. And by the late 90s, Showgirls is a punchline, and no one is seeking it out except VHS parties, <laughs> viewing parties. But there's no social media at this time, so you can't like advertise that, hey, we're giving Showgirls a whole new life. There were two versions of Showgirls available. There was the R version, which cut stuff, and the NC-17 version. And in 2004, MGM released the VIP edition on DVD. Now, this was a special box set. (laughs) It contained two shot glasses, movie cards with drinking games, a deck of playing cards, and a nude poster of Berkeley with a pair of suction cup pasties so you could play Pin the Pasties on the Showgirl. So the popularity of this movie on VHS and at these viewing parties means that Showgirls eventually went to go on to gross 
$100 million oh. in the home video and rental markets. And as if the viewing parties were not enough, it's also adopted, like all things misunderstood, by my community, the queer community. Oh. An article from the New York Times in 1996, they interviewed uh, somebody who, who went to one of the, the screenings for the drag community. And he goes, she goes to the big city, finds a family, and she uses her strength, knowledge, and sexuality to achieve her dreams. I think that's something so uniquely queer. She's a fighter. She fights to be seen. She fights to be heard. She fights to perform. I think that women and gay men understand that fight. The script must have been written by a drag queen, and everyone was acting out the film as a drag queen. For the downtown Manhattan crowd to sit through a movie for two hours and ten minutes and enjoy and participate in it is an indication it does have staying power. These queens don't tolerate mediocrity. So <laughs> the rehabilitation for this film really starts in 2003 when Film Quarterly published a discussion of individuals talking about showgirls, discussing their commentary and what the film is saying about class, gender, sexual struggles, and the way that it, quote, takes mass culture seriously as a site of both fascination and struggle. The Me Too era actually coincides with the movie's 25th anniversary, and there's a fabulous documentary, folks, called You Don't Know Me. Oh my God. Which re-examines the role of female empowerment in the movie. Who knew? I would guess that in the ensuing years that there have been more writings on this movie than Citizen Kane. Now, here's what's really interesting, though, about these documentaries and these books and these articles about how brilliant Showgirls is and how smart Showgirls is and how ahead of its time Showgirls is. And, you know, it's a brilliant joke because the joke isn't funny. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? All of these articles that I found have been written by men. I haven't found anything yet about a woman writing saying how great showgirls is or how feminist in its thinking showgirls is so uh, if you are a female identifying listener please let me know your thoughts on on all of this the thing that keeps coming back to me in this particular movie is a line where elizabeth berkeley shouts i'm not a stripper i'm a dancer and i feel like this movie is shouting i'm not a bad movie i'm satire there's a book by Adam Naiman called It Doesn't Suck, which was inspired by Showgirls. Once again, there's two documentaries about Showgirls. Jeffrey Schwartz's Goddess, The Fall and Rise of Showgirls, and Jeffrey McHale's, once again, You Don't Know Me. And this is what Jeffrey McHale said of, of You Don't Know Me, which I was, I was like, this I think was a very interesting point about the film. He says, it depicts everything sold as titillating by the heterosexual pornography industry, graphic nudity, immediate and volcanic orgasms, ostensibly straight women casually dabbling in lesbianism, and presents it so absurdly, so devoid of illusion or airs that it becomes almost nightmarish. It could, as You Don't Know Me also speculates, merely be the product of two very dumb heterosexuals. <laughs> so what exactly are we laughing at in this satire? Are we laughing at Nomi or are we laughing at two guys' idea of Nomi. Yeah, I, I just think they were out of their league and writing something like this. It's definitely, you wouldn't see two men write a film like this nowadays and get it made all the way oh, by a major studio. No, and I'm also, I'm you know, I'm, there's some things about the re-examination of this film that make me a little uncomfortable. The rape of Molly, like I said, it comes out of nowhere. It's incredibly graphic. It's incredibly violent. And it's cut a lot out of the showings of this, like the, like the comedy showings. And so my question becomes, how valid is it to change a film so it becomes the film that you want to see 
as opposed to the film that actually was made. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. And I mean, I feel like, yes, the scene, scene may be out of place and stuff, but when he explained, like, this is what happens in Vegas, I mean, I could see that that actually is something that would happen in Vegas. No, but, no of course. But, yeah, and, but And Joe Esterhaus said that that incident is actually based on a real... Sure. Which, which does not surprise no, unfortunately yeah, it doesn't, doesn't surprise, surprise me. me at all but what i'm saying is it's like if you're gonna say okay boy this movie's so funny and it's so campy and blah 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 but we're gonna cut this scene from the the comedy of it because it's offensive are you like readapting the movie to fit your narrative and also it's one of those things where there could be one of those fucking assholes in the audience who's having such a great time laughing at everything and all of a sudden that scene comes on and then they're like, oh, I'm going to laugh at this, too. Because they've and, been conditioned to they, laugh. Yeah, because, oh, they're laughing. And then I just don't understand, like, why are you going to e- this is the film that they made. And if you're going to start cutting things and removing things because you're trying to fit your narrative of it, it it's like saying, OK, I'm going to I'm looking at American Gothic. Right. And I'm saying it's really about the solitude of a woman on the farm because I've cut out the guy from the painting. But that's not what the artist created. The artist had a viewpoint, and to get rid of this horrible traumatic scene because you're like, oh, it'll make it funnier, that doesn't help anything. Well, it doesn't help anything. I think that just might be the people putting the show on going, okay, well, this let's maybe, we want to make sure this is laughed like a fun and good experience, and we don't want anything to be triggering. And here, yes, maybe the, of the, thought, the thought of a dancer could be triggering, but you're knowing going into Showgirls, okay, this is about dancing, so. But I, I, I'm like, why are you twisting what was created to fit your opinion. I think just because what they're selling that viewing as is camp and fun and they want to make sure they have camp and fun. And I, you know, like I just couldn't imagine. Yes, I get that. I get where you're coming from. But I think for them as promoters of whatever this event is. So then should you not do the, should you not show the film then at all? I don't like the scene. I think the scene is uncomfortable. I don't think the scene belongs in there. But I'm like, why are you like, are you looking for are you looking for things in this movie that aren't even there? I just feel like it also is just them trying to step over and see if they can rebrand the film as something, which is, you know, it's just a promoter trick and trying to rebrand things. But, you know, what what it is, is, yes, the the scene is in the film. And yes, you've got to watch a campy film, but you have to remember that that's in it. And I'm sure today there would be there'd be a lot of issues, I think, with the ending of the film, which is. The girl who is attacked and raped in the film is a black girl, and she doesn't seek justice for herself. White Nomi has to go in and do it. So is the idea of, like, there's a white savior complex being perpetuated in this film. But you know what's interesting? For the last 15 minutes, we've actually been talking about the film (laughs) in an artistic way. So maybe there is something in this film. I mean, I feel like that movie Hustlers that came out was about strippers and, you know, female empowerment and stuff. And that was based on a true story, but it was directed by a woman. And Hustlers was pretty successful. I don't think you could see that nowadays about a male written and directed film about female exotic dancers or, you know, performers that strip nude. I just feel like it would just be looked at as a creep project. I will say this in not defense of Showgirls, but something I thought was interesting. I had not seen the movie when it first came out. So I watched it again recently and I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, yeah, these men are, are all pigs. All these men are horrible pigs and they're all they're all harassing these women and they're violating these women. And for me, it's clear that the statement that that movie is trying to make. And I'm wondering if in 1995, would people have understood that in 1995? Are you sitting there laughing 
at them demeaning mm-hmm. the women because that's what everybody was doing? Or is the movie supposed to tell you in 1995, this is how you're coming off, stop doing it? I don't know. I, I would love to have somebody who has no history of this film watch this film today. Yeah. Now, I will say, there's a lot of things in this film that just, I mean, uh, the acting is not good. I don't think his direction is particularly strong. I would love to have seen maybe this screenplay with a different director. Oh, sure. I mean, there's so much sex and nudity in the movie that you, if there is a message, it just gets lost. Like, I watched it when I was 17, so I thought the message was the nudity, so I learned a lot this episode. That's great, right? That's really great. But I will leave the last <laughs> line to Steve Rose from The Guardian, who brings up an interesting point. He said, people loved for Hoven's movies when they took aim at hardline law enforcement and RoboCop or U.S. militarism in, in Starship Troopers or even male fragility in Basic Instinct. But with Showgirls, the target was the American dream itself and the dishonest Star is Born narratives churned out to sustain it. If Showgirls has a message... It's that the game is rigged for women like Nomi. She thinks she's climbing the pole, but really she's just spinning around it. The real power lies with the men running the racket. Nobody wanted to hear that at the time. Maybe they're ready to now. In its own messy way, Showgirls is a Me Too story with a male gaze. And that's who you said love the movie now, right? No, 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 man. Like G-A-Z-E. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Totally. Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cut-Cut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing's Too Graphic DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was A Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was A Thing Podcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really liked what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was A Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 